Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on a bright day here in the capital city as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. My name is Scott Challoner and I'm delighted to be joined on today's programme by Sarah Liverdeus. Sarah is the CEO of the Fremantle Trust, a Buckinghamshire-based organisation that works to improve the choice and quality of services available to older and disabled people. Sarah, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us today. Good morning, Scott. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's my pleasure, Sarah. Now, the purpose of this discussion is to really ascertain your take on leadership as a whole. And I think it's fair to say that leadership is something that's really been put to the test at the moment, isn't it? With the emergence of COVID-19, no less, and different business and organisation leaders having to feel their way through what is ultimately an unprecedented crisis. Of course, we will touch on that in more detail in just a moment. But if we begin the discussion, Sarah, by just looking at that word leader in isolation for a moment. What does that word actually mean to you and how does it resonate? So for me, the word leader is really all about uh, somebody who uh, really thinks about and uh, looks after the well-being of an organisation, looks after the well-being of beneficiaries and people that use services and also the well-being of the employees. So really taking all of that as a whole and thinking, what do we need to do to make sure that people are um, are okay? And what do we need to do to make sure that people are performing at their best? And then part of that would be um, thinking about the environment, thinking about partners, thinking about future people that might need our services, horizon scanning, making sure we've got enough resources. So there are lots of practical things Um, that support the well-being of of the people and the organisation. And then for me personally, um, being open, um, showing uh, that I've got integrity, talking about my values and setting out a clear vision um, is really, really important to me. And and that's what being being a leader means. And I think people who've shown such qualities are certainly those who are going to be reaping the benefits now, aren't they? Because it's their teams in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic that are really going to be mucking in and going above and beyond to just keep things ticking over because their leader has been looking out for their interests. And we've seen some quite incredible stories, haven't we, during this time of people who really have gone out of their way to keep things going, provide vital services. And I can imagine from your point of view as well, Sarah, that you've been quite inspired by what you've seen around you at the Fremantle Trust as well during this time. Absolutely right. I have to say this has been a, a quite a, um, um, an inspiring and humbling, humbling experience. Um, I mean, it's fair to say that um, as we approached the crisis, none of us knew what to expect. And, and, you know, I admit myself, I was quite frightened. I didn't know what was going to happen. And, uh, what I needed to do was to really start start planning and really thinking ahead and and planning for all eventualities. But once 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 the crisis hit us, so to speak, and people started to um, actually experience the virus, whether that was through illness or having to self isolate or looking after others, uh, we very quickly realised that we did know what we were doing. And um, for the care teams in particular, they really stepped up. So the whole community 
uh, came forward and supported them around them. And the care teams themselves, the way that they carried on, they turned up for work every day, they turned up because they cared. Many of them went above and beyond. Some of them moved into our care homes, for example, to help manage risk of infection. Um, They dealt with families remotely in a way that they'd never had to do before. They supported residents to stay in touch with friends and family using new technology. They adapted to e-learning. They adapted to using PPE. Um, and the, but the most important thing, which we all did, was we all pulled together and supported each other and made sure that uh, we looked after the well-being of absolutely everybody. And that's been hugely important, hasn't it? Because there has been a renewed focus on mental health and well-being during this time. And so many employees, workers will have been looking to their leaders for a little bit of vital reassurance during this uncertain time. And that's quite difficult when there's so much uncertainty. It puts an added pressure on leaders to keep the communication channels open and keep that reassurance flowing. But to be fair, from my point of view, I think they've actually done quite well, business organisations. They've really adapted to this and just kept things sort of ticking over quite nicely. Absolutely right. So um, for me, as CEO, part of my role in a crisis or in normal times, actually, is to is to hold the anxiety of the organisation. It's my job to stay calm um, and to absorb other people's anxiety and help them as a leader to uh, to do the right thing. But obviously, I had to deal with my own um, feelings, and I learned that I needed support myself. So I learned to get support myself either from my network, from my colleagues, from my trustees. Sometimes it was as simple as uh, make sure you take a break, uh, make sure you switch off completely, uh, make sure you admit if you're feeling um, worried or, or, or down, you know, that you talk to other people. And then obviously, I could then transmit that to my colleagues and sometimes be quite strict with them actually about um, taking a break or or seeking support. Uh, We've also done some quite practical things. So um, as we realized, for example, that people from uh, black and ethnic minority communities might be more vulnerable to the virus themselves, making sure that we had the right risk assessments in place, that we took any action, you know, on an individual basis, if people that might be vulnerable themselves for reasons of age or pregnancy. So some of it was quite practical. Some of it was walking the talk, so showing others by looking after your own mental health what they should be doing for themselves and their colleagues. And there's been a great deal of debate about clarity and transparency of existing guidelines during this time and that's also something that's incredibly important in the uh, the view of leadership um are you satisfied sarah that throughout this pandemic you've understood exactly what's been expected of you and you continue to do so as we move toward the new normal um i think it was more proactive than that so we didn't rely on others to tell us what to do we took responsibility ourselves for what we needed to do so um, we are the experts we are the experts not in coronavirus because nobody's an expert in that at least they weren't at the beginning Uh, but we do know how to provide support to older and um, disabled people so we took the guidance as it was and then we made it right for the people that we support um, we didn't we didn't really wait for for others to solve you know for example now we're looking at reintroducing visits in fact we have reintroduced visits to our care homes and services because 
I believe very strongly that those relationships are absolutely critical. Um, and as soon as we could do that, we looked at infection control. We made decisions about safety. We consulted with families, with staff and with residents. And then we put guidelines in place that worked for us. Mm. That proactivity versus reactivity um, debate is quite important as well. And there's been um, a great deal of um, discussion about that with regard to the government approach also, mainly because of the timing of the uh, the lockdown uh, procedure. Of course, we didn't uh, follow suit with uh, the Italian lockdown, which started on um, the 9th of March until the 23rd of that same month. And a lot of people have been saying that maybe that was a little bit too late. And if we take sort of proactive versus reactive, just away from that sort of situation for a second, Sarah, and away from from the coronavirus crisis. Um, Do you tend day-to-day as a leader within the trust to be proactive as and when difficulties arise in trying to get on top of them as soon as possible? Or do you like to sort of take a little bit of a backseat sometimes, let things play out a bit and then take action from that sort of point? I see my role very much as uh, looking to the future. So um, you can make the analogy with what happened with coronavirus or, or, or what happens in normal times. But I think it's really important that we are prepared for the future. We look at what's going on and then we scenario plan. We look at different options. We manage risk and then we prepare. So in the case of coronavirus, it started off with making sure all of our emergency plans and business continuity plans were up to date. Um, right the way through to actually then, you know, moving into the to the action phase. Um, but looking ahead is is really what we need to do, and we need to consult with people, and that's what I do now regardless. Um, but we, we need to think about how older people want to live their lives, for example, and then adapt what we do for those for those changing needs and expectations as we go along. I don't think it's about... Um, sitting back and seeing what's yeah. happening. Uh, obviously, you need to observe and you need to talk to people, uh, but then you need to plan and try out different different scenarios and test them out and then put them in place. And yes, of course, it's been a very difficult and a very tragic time, this pandemic. But would you say, Sarah, that there's anything that you have learnt from this and can take forward as a positive? Oh, I, I could talk all day about all the things that I've learned personally and, all, and, and what we've learned as an organization. I, I think the good things about it is, is that we've, we've rapidly adapted to using, as I said earlier, technology, for example. We've done in three months, we've delivered 6,000 um, e-learning courses, for example, when in the past, I think it was probably six. You know, we've, we've very rapidly um, changed uh, our ways of working um, remote working, similarly for head office staff, in a way that we will benefit from in the future. Um, and we've also thought very much about, um, obviously, we need to protect um, our older residents and people with a disability, but we also need to do it in a way that they can live their lives um, in, in, a, in, a, in an enjoyable way, regardless of what's going on in the environment. People do live with risk. We all live with risk. And it's important to understand that people should still have as much choice and control over their day-to-day life as possible. And if we do focus on the future just for a moment before we do wrap things up on the uh, the programme, Sarah, what do you envision over the next year for yourself and the trust and what do you hope to achieve? Do you think that that sort of online provision is something that could become more commonplace? 
I think the online bit was not is not going to change, and that's a good thing. But but my my hope would be that there is parity of esteem for care teams, for care workers, mm. that there is recognition now of what a what a, an essential role and a very skilled role that they play. Uh, I am in awe of of my teams and the work that they do, and I'm really hopeful that the wider society will now um, recognise how important they are in. In, in, in supporting so many, many people um, day to day, every day. Mm. Let's certainly hope so, because it's really shone a light on how important frontline workers really are and perhaps how they had sort of been brushed under the carpet and sort of failed to be recognised properly over the uh, previous uh, few years. And along with that renewed focus on issues such as mental health, well-being and sustainability, there is some real good that can certainly come out of this period. And you know, Sarah, I think given how informative it's been having you on the programme with us this morning, it would be great to actually catch up in future and have you back on the programme at some point in the next year just to catch up on how the Fremantle Trust is getting on on the one hand, but also just assess just how those hopes have been borne out and just see if they are getting that recognition that they do deserve those key frontline workers. Thank you. Yes, I'd love to come back and uh, share our experiences. That would be great. They would be, uh, from my point of view, really, really informative, uh, Sarah. And let's hope there's some more uh, good news to uh, to share in that respect as well. But most importantly, um, in the meantime, until we do touch base again in future, I'm sure, um, do take care and do stay safe with all still going on because we're certainly not out of the woods with this one yet. Thank you. That was Sarah Livadeus, the CEO of the Fremantle Trust speaking. Coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with Lord David Blunkett. Lord Blunkett is an active member of the House of Lords, a former Labour MP and Secretary of State, and also the chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Now, despite being blind from birth, Lord Blunkett rose to prominence to become one of the most notable politicians of his generation, holding a number of senior positions in Tony Blair's cabinet and serving as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. He was elevated to the House of Lords as Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough in August 2015. And I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew enjoyed speaking with him. That is coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is 
that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and productivity and and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm -hmm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness. But all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, But maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity 
to provide a good uh, a service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like, uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different hi interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons, because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore 
to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Donald Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London. But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. 
uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would people criticised the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in you deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Uh, shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened, because very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way i think now aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy not just national economy but also the world economy um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, 
I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months, we, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002 when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect and what happens with one will then have a major impact on another and then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected so I very much 
if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the Hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back. Perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a professional lawyer who, as director of public prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and um, the the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from '97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did. And the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have 
some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Sukir is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Sukir need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Mr. Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learnt from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, 
have also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blanket. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.